Brood. At 16, I did a day's work on an egg farm. A tin shed the size of a hangar. Inside it's oven dark. Two thousand stacked cages. Engines of clatter and squawk. My job, to pass a torch through the bars for the dead hens and pack them tight into a bin bag. All the time my mind chanting, there's only one hen. Just one ruined hen repeated over and over. In this way, I soothed the sight of all that caged battery, their feathers stripped to stems, their patches of scrotum skin, their bodies held in the dead hands of their wings. But what kept me awake that hot night in my box room as I listened to the brook outside chew on its stones and the fox's human scream was how those thousand, thousand birds had watched me. And really, it was me repeated over and over set in the amber of their eyes. Me, the frightened boy in jeans stiff with chicken shit, carrying a bin bag full of small movement, a foot that opened, an eyelid that unshelled its blind nut, a beak mouthing a word. Hello and welcome to Two Minute Stories. I'm Chris Nealon and you just heard from one of our guests from episode three who has leapt into the co-host chair for this episode and that is Mark Pajak. Welcome Mark. Hello, thank you for having me again. Thank you for coming on. sick of me by now. Well, getting there. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Just let me know. Just let me know. So you're you're our uh, you're our, our our stand-in Helen. Yes, yes. For, for the foreseeable future. Uh, How does yeah. that feel? To be Helen Morton for a, an hour or so. Yeah. Uh, so many people's dream. I <laughs> yes, I'd imagine so. Actually, I, I I hadn't actually heard myself read that poem before. Mm. I, I think I'm a little bit melodramatic you think but yeah but it's uh, i suppose it suits this not not melodrama but dra- dramatic suits this show yeah. as we've got a lot of there's a lot of violence coming up there's a lot of um i describe it as being on the edge of violence a lot of a lot of this show is on the on the verge of something else and there's a lot of threat that's true there's a lot of, of different approaches to the impact of violence, the the different ways in which we can be affected by violence, let's say. Mm. How do you think, do you think that manifests in, in the piece that you just read and how? Uh, the, 
the, the violence done, it, it's almost aftermath. It's mm. it's uh, neglect that happened there. The, the the poem is based on a friend of mine who, who actually worked on a chicken farm and mm. would uh, come and tell me these horrendous stories. And I, with a bit of research, I put together that poem. And it was about being always on the edge of this, of terrible cruelty and terrible neglect mm. and trying to cope with that. Yeah. Uh, the the tricks that we play on ourselves so that we, we insulate. There's, a, there's always a layer mm. between the two. Why did that leap out at you, do you think? That idea of cruelty being... Um a hair's breath away. I, again, it's uh, more and more in, in our society. We, we, we're, we're seeing there's 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 this huge explosion of communication. So we've got social media, and we've got twenty four hour news, and we've got all of this stuff. So we've got all of a lot of terrible things and a lot of of anger and aggression through you know things like Twitter, people fighting very publicly, mm. but it's always very contained behind a screen. Um, yeah. So we've got this wonderful explosion of communication and all of this this violence that is, is suddenly quite close to us, but then we're, we're insulated yeah. against it. We don't communicate with each other, you mm. know what I mean? That sort of thing. That's true. That's What a sort of unhealthy state to be in. Mm. The way you phrased that leapt out at me there, the, that idea that there's this, this behind, just behind this screen, mm. there's this tsunami of, of hate and judgment and cruelty. What? Tell us who's on the show today, Mark. Uh, well, today we've got um, Rachel Gunn, who is a, a doctor of neuroscience, uh, a former Royal Society Fellow at the British Columbia University. Uh, her debut novel, The Cure, which is published by Corsair, 2011, and she's got a second novel coming out, uh, What You Could Have Won, which is an excellent title. Great Absolutely title. lovely. And uh, it's forthcoming 2019, published by And Other Stories, which is a wonderful name for a publisher as well. It's, it is. It's a double winner. They're a good little publisher as well. And, and she's uh, currently she's a lecturer at MMU and Sheffield, and we're going to be talking to her today. She's going to be reading some uh, some prose, but it, it's 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 non-fiction, fiction prose. It's it's really an interesting piece. I'm really looking forward to it. And who else have we got on the show? Well, um, also, we have uh, Andrew McMullen, whose debut uh, poetry collection, Physical, was the first ever to win the Guardian First Book Award, the first ever poetry collection to win that that prize, which was a huge scoop for the poetry world. Uh, he's a, he also won the Somerset Maugham Award, the an Eric Gregory Award, the Northern Writers Award. It just won everything. He's won all the awards. But he's basically. won them all. I think <laughs> I think he should take a break now he's from winning all things. the awards. Uh, keeps but, him in his cupboard. But this is the thing: is now his, his second collection come out, Playtime, uh, again published by Cape, and this year, two thousand eighteen, yeah, which I and, have not read yet. Oh my! You've got to. You I really have to. to. I have it. You can borrow it. Give it to me. Um, and everybody out there should. Buy it, definitely. It's an incredible collection. <laughs> Andrew um, didn't even tell him to say that. That's... Well, there's this thing. Um, I was reading it, and it, it follows on from physical, but it has it's changed its focus to adolescent and childhood experience. Mm. And there's a tenderness there that wasn't wasn't there in the first book, or or, or, was, or was more so there mm. in the second book. Um, and it just it bruises your heart. It really does. It's an incredible mm. collection for making you feel oh, God, I need to sit down, you know, sort yeah. of thing. Um, and it's already a, a Poetry Book Society recommendation for, for this year. So it, it's set to win all the prizes again, I imagine. And 
excellent guests they are too. Oh, yeah, and okay. the the piece that Andrew's gonna gonna read to 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 kick us off. No, not to kick us off, because you kicked us off. The piece that Andrew's gonna read looks at the idea of um of passers by and uh intervention in violent situations. That's an that's an interesting thing to look at and it's an interesting thing uh that you mentioned a kind of tenderness in the writing. I think it's 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 hard sometimes to to coalesce uh, a sort of a tender attitude or a wish for a tenderness in daily life mm. with the 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 violence of daily life and the the um inhumanity of daily life and the anonymity of daily life. Um, is there something connected there, do you think? The thing that I was really excited about is it's it's prose, and I've not heard Andrew's prose before. And and of course, because he's an incredible writer, it, it's it's sickeningly good, mm. uh, like his poetry. And he, you can tell he has a lot of care for both the protagonist and the, the, the people who are taking part in the violence... Uh, uh, that she's witnessing but I don't think there's any tenderness between them mm. and that's the whole point of the, the piece there's violence being witnessed witnessed, and then a sort of a, a dulling of of how to react what to do in that situation Yeah, and, and a lot of things get ignored and swept under the carpet so although he, he as a writer is really you can tell he cares about these characters and they're very human and I'll, I'll let you listen yourself and and come to your own conclusions about mm. that but that's how i feel um and that there, there's a there, there's no tenderness between them yeah unfortunately interesting all right well how about we hear from uh, from andrew mcmillan this is small grief she had been sure she wouldn't sleep but when the sound of raised voices came through to her she felt as if she was hearing them through fog and so must have dozed off for a bit How long, she wasn't sure. Her head screamed at her as her eyes got accustomed to the fluorescent lights. Outside was dusk. She had missed the start of whatever was going on, but she heard someone shout, and I told you to sit down, before hearing the wet sound of someone's fist against a face. She looked up to see a man being held back by hospital porters, another being escorted towards a ward for treatment. The whole room just seemed to accept what happened. Even the man who'd thrown the punch was allowed to sit back down. Perhaps people have a maximum capacity of violence, and anything after that is just water over the sides. A couple of days before all this, she'd been coming home from the gym, having taken to waking when he did for work and been at the gym before 5.30. It meant the streets were still quiet when she left, before the city centre businessmen were even waking up. On one of the side streets, she'd passed a young man in a car, parking up for his own workout, she assumed. She'd been almost past him when he'd suddenly driven forward, first into the bumper of the car in front, pushing it out of its own parking space, leaving it stranded in the middle of the road, and then into the bumper of another parked car, shunting it forward. She couldn't work out if she was really seeing it, if it was really happening. She kept stopping to turn around and watch and then walking on a bit, then stopping again. A man in a suit who looked tired was wheeling a suitcase a few paces behind her. 
She kept trying to catch his eye, to have him as an accomplice to what she was seeing, but he kept his head down, started walking faster. The young man jumped out of his car, if it was his car, and ran down the side of the park over the road. She thought at the time she should call the police, not only to report what she'd seen, but also the car that was now marooned across both sides of the road. She thought how an abandoned car in this current climate of suspicion could shut the whole city centre down for hours. Yet, as she walked back towards the flat after a cardio, she couldn't fully accept that she hadn't been dreaming, that she hadn't imagined it, and so she opted to do nothing. That afternoon, walking back from shopping, she detoured to the same road to see if there was any evidence of what she thought she'd witnessed. There wasn't anything. A row of parked cars neatly at either side, not even any debris in the gutter. But Twitter, when the street name was searched for, had one person's report of an abandoned car they'd spotted and then reported. It made her uncomfortable all evening. How such a thing could happen and only her and the man in the suit have seen it. How the city could absorb small acts of violence such as that on a daily basis without threatening to disturb the civility that kept it functioning. That was that was an that was an incredible extract, but an extract from a a, a longer piece. Mm. So, w- could you give us a bit of a context to the story surrounding that? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I write poems. I'm a poet by trade, I guess, or not. It's not a trade by kind of nature. Um, and I had in my head this idea that just at first was going to be a novel, I think, and then just seemed it wasn't. He he just kept saying to me that he wanted to be a short story, and it was I'm I'm fascinated by um, during moments of national crises, what kind of happens on the periphery of them, and so it's always occurred to me that at nine eleven, there must have been someone who just across the other side of New York had a heart attack and died, and kind of what happened to them because all the ambulances and all the emergency kind of equipment is quite naturally kind of at the site of this kind of national tragedy and yet there's a family over the other side of the city that has to deal with the fact that someone's just died and to them that's the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And so really I guess I became very interested in how personal grief gets overlaid against national grief and how that functions. And it came about because, this is a rambling answer to this question, but it came about because once in my year 10 science lesson, my science teacher, Mr Cutts, got very annoyed at us because it was nearly Christmas and the class was really misbehaving. And just in a moment of, I guess, kind of madness, he just turned around and said, you know, people still die on Christmas Day, which is quite a harsh thing to say to kids. But then that year, my granddad did die on Christmas Day. And it's a very kind of strange thing, again, that kind of personal grief set against, in that sense, a kind of national celebration that doesn't recognise it. Or or where does that fit? And so Small Grief, which is the title of the short story, is about a woman. It imagines, I began writing it before what happened in Manchester last year. It imagines a kind of fictional um, terrorist attack on an unnamed city. Geographically, it kind of resembles Manchester, I think. And um, her husband, she gets a call from the hospital to say that her husband's um, died. Um, he's had a heart attack in work. He's kind of been brought in and they've not, um, he's died. And it just becomes about that. Her attempt to 
navigate the city in kind of crisis and to somehow come to terms with her own grief against what's happening to the city, even in terms of, oh, but the body's been moved to this provincial hospital outside. Oh, but there'll be a massive queue for death certificates for a few weeks. So don't kind of, and kind of trying to set up her kind of personal grief against the kind of city's grief and where those two things fit, I guess. And so that little extract of the car, um, kind of, I've witnessed that literally kind of walking to the gym one morning and it's the weirdest thing because she just kind of, I mean, literally as that extract describes, kind of in a city, you know, if that happened in a small village, people would talk about it for weeks. Mm. But in a city somehow it's forgotten about within the hour. It doesn't make the news, it's not in the newspaper. And yet this kind of mad act of something that just somehow passes by um, which is both quite exciting but quite terrifying, I think, in living in a city. Um, and so that's the that's where I guess it fits in um, to the wider piece. So I've, I've noticed a lot in your work, um, but there you've got this beautiful poem where you talk about uh, somebody who survives Hiroshima then goes on to survive Nagasaki only to die of stomach cancer years later. There's this idea of bringing the individual. Do you think that's that's something that writers tend to do because I think journalism tends to, you know, we've got the statistics, we've got the overlay and things kind of get lost. Whereas writers, do you feel a need to bring out the individual in stories like that? I guess so. God, I'd forgotten about that poem. That was years ago. Um, That's a great poem. Thank you (laughs) for my early juvenilia. Um, I think that the poet's job, or I view the poet's job as to pay very close attention to individual people, which... When it, even if it's not sensual or sexual, is an act of intimacy to pay close attention to one person. Um, and I think that's what poems can do very well. I think that, I mean, even in short stories, even in novels particularly, you need a kind of grand sweep of narrative oftentimes, or you need a kind of much more rounded sense of people. I think what poetry can do very, very well, or what short fiction perhaps can do as well, although I'm kind of a novice at that, I'm still feeling my way through it, is that is a, a very intense focus on one person who is part of something bigger um, and almost through the act of synecdoche to kind of um, talk about the bigger thing through the, to the small thing. I mean, it's impossible to write about big ideas. It's just impossible. It has to be done through um, through individuals or through glimpses of things. Just to pick up on something you said before, you said that you are naturally a poet, yeah. which I really like as an expression. And, and that you're feeling your way through prose at the moment. Is there an excitement in that for you? Because it's sort of, uh, it's new ter- new ground you're breaking. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. I mean, um, you get into a rut, I think, with something that you enjoy doing. And I, mean, I mean, I don't enjoy writing at all. I know that's a terrible thing to say. I really hate it, um, mostly. Um, but feel compelled to do it, as I think writers do. Um, with poetry, I think it's easy to get very comfortable especially once you, you know, I've got two books out now, they've been received in the way they've been received and things like that. And so I can sit down and find myself writing another Andrew McMillan poem. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I could probably do that quite easily. And so part of the challenge now with poetry is to constantly make myself uncomfortable and try new things and push myself into areas of discomfort. The great thing about kind of novels or short stories is I'm discomforted constantly all the time by it. It's an entirely new process of writing. I mean, I write poetry... I mean, I don't advise writing like this, but I write poetry very slowly, line by line, without really consciously sitting down to write it. It just kind of comes and then I will shape it later. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, 
to me, it would be impossible to write a novel like that. So part of what's been different for me is the discipline of mm. going, well, I have to write a thousand words today, I have to do 500 words today, or I have to sit down, getting into the headspace of sitting down at a desk and doing it, which is something I've never done for poetry. I have a kind of study at home, but I do my emails in it. Like I don't sit and write poetry. Um, so the idea that I would sit down at a desk and do something. Um, but I like the idea of being an amateur at something. I like the idea of being, you know, a novice at something. And I'm starting to, you know, I've got a couple of short stories. I've been trying to work on this novel um, just really to see if I can do it. Like I just kind of, I feel at a kind of relaxed stage of my writing career to a certain extent and just think I can try stuff. No one has to know about it apart from I've told everyone now, but no one has to read them if they don't kind of become anything. Um, and I think my agent would like me to write something that's not poetry. Mm. Uh, but something that you said before, which I found really interesting, because I think I feel this way, is hating hating writing. Uh, there's that famous quote by George R. R. Martin says, I hate writing, but I love having written. <laughs> Did you think that's true of you? Do you like looking back on what you've produced and going, or, or is it always about looking forward? I think for me, it's always about looking forward. I feel a detachment from the work once it's done and out in the world. I can be quite objective about it. Anytime I get a kind of negative review, I kind of agree with it. I kind of go, yeah, that's fair. Like, you know, I don't really mind um, what people think. You know, it's nice if people like it. Um, but yeah, the process of writing, I find excruciating. But, but it should be. It should be hard. It should never be easy. If it's easy, you're not doing it right. You know, if, it, if there's nothing on the line, if it's not costing you anything to write it, if it doesn't kind of almost kill you to write it then what's the point then you know go and do something else or put that pen down and go and write the other thing that you need to be writing and this isn't the thing you need to be writing that was mark in conversation with andrew mcmillan and now we're going to hear from our second guest rachel gen an excerpt from cataract you let your knees bounce apart to their childish limits splaying wide to allow the taut gusset to span the untouched scoop between your thighs. Your pants are a tiny, tented temple, stretched perpendicular to what curiously resembles a worn stone step in a cathedral tower. You bounce those knees apart, apart again as unchewed chunks of chocolate make it down your throat in an emulsion of fondant. After all, you have no idea yet what to do with all of what you have inside. You're still a girl, liquid and tight. Living up to now seems a lesson in just how much of yourself you should not spill. When people watch you, it's because they suspect how much power you have. From the depths of your charged whiteness in her Austin Allegro estate... A silent understanding between your mother and yourself has breached your collective waters and until you describe it, perhaps even after that, it will have to be held on trust. You couldn't have got here alone. This needed the involvement of the small cops over the road, the dashboard, your gusset and the whiteness of the sky in a sophisticated cantilevered formation. The trees held you in place, but at a distance, and anyone could run their hands around this car to make sure there weren't strings or struts that allowed the trees their influence over this. Throughout all that didn't happen in the car that afternoon, you were aware of even the road under you as accomplice to the illusion. Your desires had fought off words that could not come close to what happened. 
Words are the beginnings of meaning, not the end you are discovering, and you've learned to take meaning where you can get it. You believe trees can be magicians. You believe in the magic of trees making this memory. You will, wherever you can, tell complete strangers about the potency of your mother. Before you read your piece, Rachel, we were talking about the meaning of uh, of what you write and whether or not you should, how aware you are of the meaning of what you write uh, when you write it. And we were kind of saying that uh, you might not be, you might not be yeah, aware yeah. Uh, of your meaning uh, at all, maybe at any point, uh, perhaps even after you finished. And you were certainly talking about um, about that in the context of this piece. Yes. Um, Tell me about that. Yeah, um, the, it's a piece that was commissioned by The Real Story, who are pushing the essay form in the UK. Um, and it was the first piece of creative non-fiction, really. I mean, it's a story about my childhood, uh, and it's, um, it's something that's from a very long time ago. And so it's misted to some extent because of that. But um, I, I tweeted actually the other day that it's only when I write that I see what I don't mean. What you don't mean? Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's the process of writing and editing for me is getting rid of what I don't mean. Right. Um, and the piece itself is called, the piece I read out, is called Cataract because um, there's something obscuring the vision uh, when we look to the past and we have to get around that. Um, I've got a little part from the the rest of the story which kind of refers to the process, if that's all right for me to read it. Go for it, yeah. Um, We're reluctant to consider that the mind's eye might be the wrong instrument of perception or retrieval. Instead, we persist in the visual search, forcing the focus to cinch, finally invoking a cataract rather than admitting that what we're looking for cannot be seen. Some scenes from your history hand themselves to you so starkly that it makes you mistrust and dislike them. But how do we write what Jack Underwood describes as not something definite, but definitely something? So uh, for me, I think writing, especially from one's own life, is trying to capture, not capture, no, trying to set free what it was that, was happening between you and another person or uh, the things that aren't exactly sensed or tangible. Mm. Trying to recreate that in words is really the writer's job, I suppose. I agree. Absolutely. I think that's a very good description of what of what writing feels like to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is there's the idea that, um, for instance, I know people who describe the novel as um, just what happens when. And I'm all for that. I like it when things happen. <laughs> but um, what's behind what is happening is just as interesting to me as yeah. a writer. There's got to be more going on in there than just plot, right? Well, yes. And also you've got to infer the possibilities behind what's going on as a reader. Mm. And uh, you have got to be given the space to do that by the writer. And that's where... Good writers succeed. And that sort of suggests that there's a kind of collaborative trying to make sense of things going on 
between the between the writer and the reader at to- different points totally. in time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, reading is absolutely a creative act, um, and I think the the directions, implicit directions you give to the reader, that's your part of the bargain as a writer, and then what the reader does with those determines whether the reader will be satisfied with what you've written. One of the one of the things I often talk about is um, this idea that that if you if you want to be a writer, if you're the kind of person who should be a writer, um, you need you you ought to need to write. You ought to have that that something inside you that only feels quenched and only feels satisfied when you have when you've written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's universal. That might be just applying the way that I feel onto, oh, this is what writers should be. Um, but I think I've heard that a lot. Um, I, I, I think that's a common experience, um, that, that this, this compulsion to have to write. And for me, I think that, that feels often a lot like needing a time and a space to sit down and make sense of things and, and to discover... Uh, I write an awful lot of, of kind of um, creative nonfiction, kind of semi-autobiographical stuff as well, um, a lot of which I then have no intention of publishing because I've gotten it out and I've made sense of it. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so for me, it is, it's very much a process of I need to go away from the world for a few hours and make sense of things. Um, is... Yeah, I'm going to say to you that maybe I like to go to a time and space if indeed they are the right dimensions. Mm to um, allow things to not make sense Mm. for a bit. So things to be tethered but not chaotic. Mm. And that's a very fine balance. And I write quite a lot about recently about the state of like artistic reverie and what it means to be able to not evaluate yourself for a, uh, however long it takes to write something down. Mm. And it's when we get to that space where we're not um, no longer kind of using reference to ourselves and how good or bad we are at doing this mm. that we can enter that space of either making sense or not making sense. I think it's kind of like a neutral zone that is full of the energy we can't live without. The piece is written in the second person, isn't it? Um, uh, or is it? Or does it just seem like it's? Yes, it is. In the yeah, yeah. Person? Sorry, yeah. I do write a lot in the second person. In fact, I do too. Um, what What do you think you get from writing in the second person? What does that give a piece? Um, I feel like it's a bit of a cheat in that it it's a bit of a two way thing. So you can you can make people feel that they are being directly addressed. But you're also holding them a bit of an emotional distance, so you're you're kind of like um, uh, investing in two ways. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I I agree. I I always think of it as like um, I'm pointing at them and at me at the same time. Mm. Yes, yeah. that's it. Yeah, uh, and I don't know if that works all the time. But I'm, I've just written a novel where I've, it's a two-hander with a, a first person and a second person um, character perspective. Uh, I can't tell you absolutely if it's worked yet, but it's what I'm going with for now. In the process of working. Yeah. I, I, I did a, a couple of stories I read recently, um, and our favourites of mine are Black Box by Jennifer Egan. Mm. And um, 
How to Talk to a Hunter by Pam Houston. They're two fantastic um, second-person short stories. Love Jennifer Egan. Yes, She's me fantastic. too. Me too. Annoyingly yeah. fantastic. Oh, superb. Yeah. I'm in the process of trying to rip her off at the moment. Oh, aren't we all? <laughs> She's, um, she, she writes what I call pop-up books for adults. Ah, okay. That's, <laughs> That's what I like to think. So the, the way that she manipulates time, uh, I think, yeah. is just like pull here, twirl this. It's yeah. just really, really effective. Yeah, her her dealing with time, I think, is very interesting, and that's it's it seems more and more to me that that's a, a key concern of the novel. Yeah, the, uh, the way that we deal with time. Um, it seems I'm not sure why it's so central to that form, but I I feel like it is. Yes, am I right? Am I onto something there? I feel like it is too. Although there are people who have very specific concerns with time, even in flash fiction, you know. Mm. So um, I don't know how specific it is to the novel. I guess there are some tenets of manipulating time that will uh, be applicable to all forms, and some that are specific to the form. I haven't really thought about it. Yeah, I, I haven't got much. any clear thoughts on it either. <laughs> <laughs> feeling my way, feeling my way towards a thought. There's a thought yeah. in there somewhere. I'll get there eventually. Yeah. Um. I'm I'm very interested in in the openings of novels and how to do them effectively because I'm rubbish at them mm. and I never get the opening right. And so I'm constantly going and reading the going to Waterstones and reading the first two pages of ten different novels and going, "What have they done? Oh yes, how I, have I've they done? got. A, you should look up. Um, I've got a fantastic quote by Tao Lin. Who um who wrote Taipei I think um mm. and he says that um what he does is he panics he takes lots of different drugs then panics <laughs> and looks in in the front of every book that he he can get his hands on and says yeah. to himself this is how I should do it I should be doing it like this this is it that's why what, why have I not done this that's what I do minus he says, the drugs and he says sometimes he even does it with his own books <laughs> and it's, it's it's a great quote I shall send it to you it's really fantastic well yeah it sounds like I could use it yeah. how what well, here's a question how do you how do you start a piece? Like I'm, I'm sure there are a variety of different ways. But um, what do you, what do you look for to, to, to feel that a piece is working or that there's, there's weight to a piece? Are you attracted to? Um, do you start with a, a phrase or some quirk of language or plot? Or uh, it's usually something I don't understand. Hmm. It's usually so for this piece, for instance. It was knowing that I'd never felt closer to my mother than when nothing was happening, no one was saying anything, uh, but we were just allowed to commune uh, without there being anyone else there. Uh, and I just wondered where that intimacy came from and I wanted to talk about why it had so much import for me. Uh, and so that's what I did in this piece. I I kind of like excavated. And actually what I'm saying is mostly I've got handfuls of clouds. Thank you.
So there was a particular thing that came up from your talk with Andrew, mm. which resonated with me very much um, and which I'm interested in, which is the idea of uh, hating writing, mm -hmm. but loving having written, mm -hmm. um, which you said someone coined that, right? Uh, it's George R. R. Martin who wrote George R. R. Martin, uh, the, Game of Thrones. Yeah, the Fire and Ice books. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and and it's it's an unusual one because I think that a lot of people who come into creative writing courses, or my experience having having done a an undergraduate and then a postgraduate, um, you see people very often not completing degrees or just sort of coasting through degrees who come with this idea of writing being, you know, there's that famous. Bukowski poem where it goes if it doesn't just come leaping out of you if it doesn't just come then don't write then don't it has to just be like fire in you mm. that's not the case at all and no. Bukowski was talking rubbish <laughs> is the polite term I think and you you do see people disheartened very quickly when it comes yeah. to writing because it isn't easy yeah that, I agree I, I, there is the sense especially when you're young and you're starting to write mm -hmm. I think it's it's generally because it feels nice to do that, right? Mm -hmm. It feels pleasurable, it feels like you're good at it, it feels like artistic and it's something you can immerse yourself in and enjoy. And if you want to do it seriously, that enjoyment is not the main experience of writing. And it's it's so often I hear writers say, and I absolutely experience this myself, I hate writing. Mm -hmm. uh, I The majority of writing that I do, I have to force myself to do it and I largely don't enjoy it. But it's then reading back and seeing... Um, that you've done something good, that at that pleasure is um, uh, very satisfying. Then again, there's also the the self doubt and the self hate and the oh this is awful. I've I'm terrible for vacillating between I like I I look back on something and I go oh this is great this is it this is the one <laughs> this is my best work and then I read it five more times. And three weeks later, I'm like, this is awful. This is the worst thing anyone has ever written. I'm not talented. Why am I writing? And I drive my my uh, my close friends and my partner crazy <laughs> by skipping between these two points. Um, but there's Andrew was talking about that being compelled to write. I I do not feel healthy. I do not feel human. I don't feel myself unless I get time to go away and write. Is that your experience as well? Completely. And um, and just chiming on what, what you said before about with your friends, I, I've, I've got a friend, uh, Lee Thompson, who is an incredibly talented uh, TV scriptwriter and and, uh, and playwright as well. And me and Lee take it in turns. Like he'll be going, oh, I've got this great script and it'll be at the time where I'm not feeling great about my work. So he'll sit back and listen to me going, I'm rubbish. Uh, and then we'll like, after a week, we'll go, right, let's swap now. I'm Your feeling turn. good about, you've made me feel good about myself. I'll make you feel. And we take, we have this wonderful system worked out. It's great. Nice. The idea of being compelled to write. Um, I write out of, um, when I did the, the guest slot here and I talked mm -hmm. about uh, difficulty with yeah. writing as, as a young person, um, I feel the compulsion comes from writing out of spite it's an act of defiance when i do it uh, i'm like <laughs> look i can do this and it's yeah. wonderful fuel um I, i've been working for the past month and a half i've been not at home a lot and i've not been able to sit down and write every day and it's driving me nuts mm. because i'm not I'm, a, I'm at the moment i'm a reader i'm going to events and i'm reading i'm not a writer yeah and it's only on the days i write 
am I a writer? And I get to claim that name, mm. um, which is one I've worked hard for. So, yeah. So I completely get that. Where do you think that comes from, that, that, that compulsion. compulsion to write? What is that? Why do we have that? It, well, it must it must be individual to everyone. I know, and that's what's so fun about talking to writers. It, this, this, if we all had the same story, it all came from the same place. The podcasts like this wouldn't happen, and we would all be reading the same two minute story of yeah. how I got started. And well, thank God they're different then. Exactly. Yeah. So mine mine comes from a place of like, how dare you? I'm going to I'm yeah. going to write, and then um, I know that uh, I I and I know a writer. Um, uh, Katie Owens, who's uh, again is trying to give, uh, who who's a great feminist and a, and a, a and a wonderful uh, poet and playwright herself, and she writes from a, a a sort of, she she got up on stage once when she was very young and stood in a proscenium arch. Am I proscenium? That's proscenium not, arch. That, I'm it. saying that right. Nailed it. And she just went, "This is incredible!" And it was the lights, and that got her into theatre, and that got her into writing and Shakespeare and all of that sort of things. But she also writes to give. Uh, female characters in Shakespeare that plays a voice. So she's doing mm. a very almost a similar Caroline Duffy thing, and th- and that's her. What gets her going? What's yours? What what's your impulse? Where did it all start? I started writing song lyrics mm-hmm. when I was a, a terribly emotional sixteen-year-old. Go on, Chris, <laughs> who give us a tune. Go on. By the world. I have the voice of an angel, but I won't. I, I, won't, <laughs> I don't doubt that I won't, for a second. I won't treat you to it right now. Um, uh, I, I, I wanted to. I wanted to be a musician. Absolutely, mm-hmm. um, that was a passionate goal of mine. Well, well into my twenties, mm-hmm. um, but it didn't work. Like I, I, I've got, I've got a good voice. I can play guitar passingly. You got um, the face of a lead singer. I've got as well, the face yeah. of a lead. We all know that. <laughs> Not the haircut. Um, <laughs> I've got skinny jeans, so oh, that yeah, works. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't. I couldn't match what I wrote. I could. I could write good words. Mm. I don't think I could write good songs. But the words I could write were good. But I could. They didn't match with my vocal performance, and often it just didn't come out sounding right. And I probably could have. If I really focused on music, I probably could have done something, I reckon, in music. I, d- I don't know if I would have been good, if I would have thought I was good, but I think I had a good enough voice and enough skill with language that I could have, I probably could have been some kind of singer songwriter type, maybe not actually signed, maybe playing little gigs that no one came to, who knows. But um, ultimately, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want to, uh, I had other interests that, uh, maybe I was better at. I was better at just just writing rather than writing and performing. I think, um, but it, it started for me with it started with having too much emotion. It started with being having all these emotions swirling around and not being able to express them and ex- and express myself enough in social situations in interacting with people in discussing with my friends in being as kid at school I couldn't get me out I couldn't get all the important things I had inside me out I couldn't express things mm-hmm. but I could when I could I could I could try when I went away on my own and I put them down on paper um, and I had enough aptitude for it that I got encouragement and I did things well and I thought maybe I could do this for for my life um, 
actually that's wrong i don't think i don't (laughs) think it was as conscious as oh i think i could do this for my life that was Mm -hmm. a part of it but i think more it was this compulsion that we're talking about that i had to do it i had to do some kind of use of language and creation to make sense of things it's interesting what you said before like with with songwriting you you didn't feel like it was very good that's what you said but sometimes you you it was often very bad but then again you you feel that we, we all feel that about our writing. But then you said something really interesting. You said that, um, you've said lots of interesting things. This is Thank just you. something I've picked up on. Thank, no, there but was just that one It bit. didn't sound right. So even though it wasn't like you didn't feel confident about its quality, which is something that we all feel about our writing anyway, songwriting didn't feel right. So there is a rightness to writing. Yeah. You, you feel that? Yes, I think so. I think so. Mm. I mean, I I have an awful lot of self doubt about it as well. Mm. But yes, it feels it feels that it's probably the thing I'm meant to be doing. I've been doing it for about fourteen years now, so I hope it is. Mm. Well, I mean, it, well, I mean, it just it, it goes with something that Rachel was talking about. You and Rachel had an, an incredible conversation where you're talking about this sort of grey area, this sort of digging into the unknown and trying to get that. Find that rightness in the fact that you you tether things down, but you don't want to kill them. There's that idea of finding the right pitch, the right mood. The, the you you were talking about fragility, the edge of something, the grey area, and 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 I thought that was fascinating. It was a whole conversation, but there is an idea of rightness there. There's an idea of trying to hit the right pitch. If I can if I can borrow song terminology there, take it. But uh, take it away. So take it yeah, away, Mark. I, but I think writing gives you that moment to 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 fill that gray area that in between space and and there is a lot of rightness in there because it communicates so much because it's not telling you didactically this is it mm-hmm. and it allows you room for those emotions for uh, to communicate so much with so little yeah the gray space mm. defining the gray space mm. Let's change the title of the podcast to that. Okay. Defining sure. the Grace page. Chris I've Neal just and come Mark in Padre. and taken over there with new titles also. <laughs> right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up. Let's wrap up this okay. episode, episode number four of Defining the Grace Space. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I'm going to close the show with a story, uh, which I I stole the title of this story from a line from your poem from the last show. I think this was a line from your poem. Either that or it came up in conversation. But I think the line was the sound of glass almost breaking. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked that. So I stole it and I wrote a story and it is called The Sound of Glass Almost Breaking. She has a layer around every organ. Lungs, liver kidneys, heart, a layer thin as sugar glass. The way it's explained, it's some freak keratin mutation, like having fingernail one cell thick and brittle as ground frost encircling all her crucial parts. It means the organs are extremely delicate, the doctor told her. Beneath the keratin layer, well, think of if you took off all your finger and toenails. So this layer ruptures at all, even slightly, we're going to be in serious trouble. She comports herself with grace, because if she doesn't, she will crack and liquefy. Overexertion, I'm talking even a coughing fit, the doctor said, could cause internal hemorrhaging. 
she will float through this world, she decides, until such a time as she cracks. And then she will let go of solidity with grace, let go of painlessness with grace, and embrace liquefaction. Knowing it, that she is due to be cracked at any point, makes things easier, in a way. She finds a taste for war films. She watches and watches on the sofa, in bed, in the soft spaces her mother urges her not to leave. Your problem, an effective soldier tells an ineffective one, is that you think you've still got a chance of making it out alive. But Blythe, the effective soldier, leans in. Your only hope is to accept that you're already dead. She writes this down in one of her notebooks. She knocks the glass off the coffee table. Its sound fills the room for a fraction of an instant, into which she pours herself, and in which she lives for a while, echoing around and around and around.